Let's begin with prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for instituting holy matrimony to keep us from unchastity and other offenses. Send your blessing on every husband and wife that they may not provoke each other to anger and strife, but live peaceably together in love and godliness. Receive your gracious help in all temptations and raise their children according to your will. Move us all to walk before you in purity and holiness, to put all our trust in you, and lead holy lives on earth and in the world to come. Enjoy eternal life. Through your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, if you're a coffee person, by the way, I brought coffee today. It's special coffee. It's nice coffee. uh, Feel free to grab a cup or two. As your leisure, because I will. Um, There you go. Last week, we were talking about the third day. Remember that? And uh, so we're the second to the last paragraph on the... I don't know how you're supposed to know it's the front side of the sheet since I didn't put page numbers on it. But anyway, the front side of the sheet, the one with the prayer at the top. And uh, we were looking at Ezekiel last week to talk about... Welcome, Don. To talk about... Um, that relationship of God and Israel being uh, a picture of, of wedding or of marriage, both in terms of faithfulness and unfaithfulness, actually, which we also talked about. Uh, so we looked at Ezekiel 16 and Ezekiel 23. Let's look at Isaiah 54 and Isaiah 62. So go to Isaiah 54. And again, we just want to flesh this out. Some of this is, uh, to recap, some of the reason why we're doing this it's actually in response to a question I had when I was serving in Chicago, where um, uh, I was asked, actually, by, by a faithful layman, um, you know, to, to explain to him the, or to better teach this relationship and, and why marriage is used repeatedly as a picture in the scriptures. Because um, it didn't really resonate with him uh, the way it did what he thought it might with others. And uh, I think maybe... Maybe I should uh, hmm, maybe I should express a little bit what's going on there. Is what, what the scriptures would have you do is understand marriage in terms of Christ and His Church, and then let that be a reflection upon your marriage. Okay, but the way that we do things is we take what we experience, our understanding of marriage based off our experience and emotions, and then try to import that upon the scripture. You see. So then, then that's what happened in this, the case I'm, I'm mentioning where, you know, and I asked him if I could teach on it after that because he was trying to understand the marriage of Christ and his church according to his own experience of marriage. He was married and, and relatively happily, you know, as happily as marriage ever is. <laughs> and, uh, but, but the problem being is that our earthly marriages are always, there's, there's a degree of, um, what, corruption and whatnot. So... So we're, we're to flip it the other way, and that's what Paul does in Ephesians 5. As he says, uh, that actually the marriage of Christ to his church was given before earthly marriage, even before the creation of Adam and Eve, which is a pretty interesting idea. All right, so uh, Isaiah 54, 4 to 8. Who hasn't read? Go for it. Thanks. Fear not, you will no longer live in shame. shame Sorrows will be remembered no more, for your Creator will be your husband. Mm. The Lord of hosts is his name. He is your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. 
God of all the earth. For the Lord has called him back from your grief, a young wife abandoned by her husband. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with great compassion I will get to you. In a moment, oh, okay. Yeah, keep In a moment of anger, I turned my face a little pile, but with everlasting love, I will have pity on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Yeah. So you have two parallel ideas going there that maybe you haven't connected as well, um, which is that of the, the marriage and redemption or being a redeemer. Right? Now, what story does that make you think of, of a marriage and being Boaz redeemed? Boaz and Ruth. Boaz and Ruth, right? Yeah, and uh, that's that, well, that whole book, um, there's some accusation that maybe it's not as biblical because it never mentions... God, actually, <laughs> the whole book. They're like, well, wait a minute. Like, what's the whole story about? Well, of course we know who Boaz and Ruth are. They are, as far as their lineage, the grandparents of David. David, yeah. So that's, and if certainly um, then Boaz is mentioned like in the lineage of Jesus because David being um, Jesus is what? I don't know how many generations. I tried to do the math once. I forgot how many greats that was. It's not that many. It's, it's a lot less than you would think. Uh, so that's part of the reason. But actually the story there is, is really an expansion of this whole idea that Isaiah is doing. Which is that she is... What's, what's the character of the bride? The bride-to-be? She, she has shame. You see that? You will forget the shame of your youth in verse 4. And the reproach of being a, a, of a widow, so that's remarriage even, um, disgraced and, uh, and in fear. Right? So then being redeemed or being married off, then, or being married to here, to the Lord of hosts, um, takes her out of all of that. So it covers her shame. It, what else? Removes her disgrace. And uh, this is not just ancient world. Um, trying to think well yeah no it is it's primarily ancient world it's a little less the case now but it was the case in the ancient world that a woman without uh, a husband was left alone and by that the scriptures mean she has nothing she has no inheritance right because that goes through the sons Um, if she has no son or sons to care for her then then there's no one to watch out for her and so then uh, women fall women who are not married would fall into disgrace because they had no employee and they, if they had no inheritance or no one to care for them, um, then they would revert to the only kind of employment that women can do apart from, in that world, apart from uh, uh, marriage. So, you know, so that's a little hard for us to get our head around. Um, it's very patriarchal, so that's not, it's offensive, I suppose, in this day with the whole whatever we're in, progressive movement. Uh, but it's a reality. And that, and that comes to play then in a story like when Jesus meets the, the widow at Nain, Remember that widow? All right, and they're carrying out the coffin, and it's got her son, and then I think it's St. Luke in particular, remarks her only son. Right? So it's not just that her son died, it's that basically the only thing to keep her from falling into great disgrace is, is that son in the coffin. Um, which is interesting because there's all the mourners, and they're all, the, the whole town's grieving. Now maybe they're actually, some would suggest those are professional mourners. <laughs> so you would actually just pay for people to wail. 
It's like paying for the organist at your funeral. Which, I mean, it sounds funny, but, but that would be disgraceful too, is to not have mourners. So that's why I think they suggest, I think that's why there's a suggestion there that maybe, something on my nose. There's a suggestion there that she paid them off and she used what little she had left just to have a proper funeral. So when Jesus comes along and then gives healing and restores him to her, um, that's not only restoring her from potential disgrace and falling into shame, but um, providing for her, protecting her, and really is then a picture of what he has done for us, is redeeming us from that same kind of shame and disgrace, which is here in this text. So he's the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Who, Who is this, do you think, when it says the Lord of hosts? Which person in the Trinity? All three, or one, or two, or I would, I would say it's the son. And the reason for that, it's a good guess, is verse 7. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. Who has he forsaken for a moment? The scriptures are clear about this. It's never, it's never his bride, but it's the bridegroom, it's his son. Yeah, is the only one who's forsaken forever, or for a moment. Right? And Jesus himself takes those words into his own mouth. That's why I can say that. <laughs> right? He prays Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have, I, why have you forsaken me at the cross? So, and that's, but that's, of course, and very important here because I'm trying to make the point that this marriage is connected to the cross. <laughs> the union of the bride to the groom. We'll see that more here uh, in this text. This text is rich with that kind of symbol, symbol, symbolism, the John text. Uh, anything else there? that strikes your fancy that we should mark, remark on? Everlasting kindness, mercy. Mm. And then that redemption and that being redeemed by marriage, which is really beautiful. Welcome, Eileen. Look, notice that he pursues her. I think that's probably an important thing too. You see that? For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused. All right. he, he is called the God of the whole earth. Um, so this is something to be aware of in the scriptures, uh, especially when it comes to this redemption language, is who is the subject of the sentence? The Lord is, right? And so uh, the way that Dr. Nagel said it, or taught me to say it, is to say... Uh, who's the one running the verbs is the subject, right? And then we are the object. And that's the way of salvation. The language of, of the gospel is with, it's the Lord is the subject and he's the one doing the verbs. Um, as soon as you become the subject or you become the one doing, we're no longer talking about salvation. We're no longer talking about gospel. It's no longer gift or good news. It's more like sacrifice. It's sacrifice, which means it's L word. It's the law. It's according to the law. And uh, the, that's what Walter would call confusing law and gospel. Is when the Lord comes along and says, I've saved you. And you say, okay, I love you too. And you're like, well, that's nice. But, you know, you could twist that to say, well, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. And so now that makes it valid. All right. Do, do you understand that idea? Let me say it a different way. It'd be like someone who's saying, I, I say, take eat the body of Christ for you. And you say... Um, well, because I believe that, then it's so. And I just gave you the Lord's word. He said it's so, and now you're saying, because I believe it, it's so. 
well, that's not quite right. Instead, you could just say amen. You can say amen, so. which is mean I, that does still mean I believe yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Right, but it's not. You, your faith doesn't make it so. The Lord's word does. All right. So that's another way where we kind of take, try to take control of God and of His word. This is the theme of the sermon today. So yeah, it's in my head. These things come out. All right. Uh, let's see. Want to skip ahead? Isaiah sixty-two. Let's do that. I'm not giving you all the references because we'll be here forever then. But again, I'm trying to just flesh this, this theme out of, of a wedding um, because John does. I mean, this is the first big, this is the first sign. And so why does he do this when the synoptics don't? All right, go ahead. And who would like to read? Roberta just read. Go ahead, guys. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silence, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. There you go. So there's a lot of themes there. Um, I I love verse 4. It's one of my favorite verses in this text. Because they um, they take these really... What I want to call it. like we take adjectives and turn them into nouns, is that right? Is that the because you're no longer termed forsaken? It's like that's your proper name. You're called forsaken uh, or desolate, right? I think of, that's probably how they referred to like Sarah. She's the or Sarai, right? Before she's Sarah, the desolate one. Not maybe not to her face, hopefully, because <laughs> you can imagine that. that just sticking the sword in, but uh, or forsaken. Right? What a horrible name to, to, to think of or to be called. Right? Now that's an accusation that's that's against uh, God's church throughout all the scriptures and even to this day. Look at them, how pitiable they are. You know, oh that that church out in the country has had their struggles and and you know, they used to be they used to have four hundred in church on a weekend and now they only have whatever it is. I don't know. And something, right? And they say, oh, they're forsaken, you see. And uh, what an insult. And, and yet, what do we say? <laughs> we're blessed. <laughs> yes, we're smaller, and that's not, it, you know, maybe not how we'd like it, um, but the Lord's still here, and he's still with us, and he's still taking care of us. Thanks be to God. You see? So, so it's outside versus inside. Um, but you shall be called, and uh, what translation you have? You have the ESV? Yeah, so they, they translate the Hebrew terms. I have New King James, and they didn't translate them. So it's Hephzibah and Beulah. Actually, Beulah. Where's Beulah? Glenbeulah. Glenbeulah. You know what Glen means? It's, it's like valley, I think, right? Or meadow. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's the married valley. Huh? And it, maybe it's from this text. I don't know. Somebody find out. Do the, do the research. Right? But again, they're proper names. So now you have these new names, which is, what was the first one? Hephzibah? Hefzib- 
Yeah, my delight is in her. That's not forsaken. That's the opposite, right? And married, not desolate. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. Which is kind of an odd, odd image, right? How do you marry a land? People actually use that expression, don't we? They're married to the land? Mm-hmm. Referring to... What do, we, what do we use that to refer to? People who are married to the land. Farmers? Yeah, I think. Yeah, farmers. My mother, you weren't here when I said this last week, Cassie, but uh, my mother said I don't give you enough time to answer the questions. But if you're, if you're in confirmation class, it's like, you got to jump in or I'm just going to answer for you. So You know this, right? We don't have that much time. I'm sitting around waiting for an answer. Anyway. Uh, so, and, I, and actually, I tell this to the confirmants and, and with the kids too. Just, I don't care what the answer is. Just give me an answer. And if it's wrong, fine. I'll tell you it's wrong. But um, you know, don't take that personally. It's just like quick thinking. It's good. It's a good thing to cultivate. Yeah, as a young man marries a virgin, so your son shall marry you. So now we have this weird kind of weird picture. It's almost polygamy, I guess, if you want to really take it too far. But the idea of, of the bride being a multitude, being a whole host, right? It's the church. So we're, we're all collectively the bride um, joined to, the, to, to Christ, who is our head, and then as one body, as one flesh, which that's another marriage picture, isn't it? Yeah. Um, notice all the, the royal stuff, right? We've got a crown or a royal diadem. Uh, <laughs> hmm, I'm trying to think when this comes up in the church. We hear this imagery uh, referring to referring to Israel. When do we hear that? With, with the royal companions following behind her. That's the psalm. I think it's psalm. Is it psalm 110 maybe? We heard part of that last week. Anybody know when we would hear this kind of language about a bride with crowns? And... Wait, what's the question? <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. When do we hear in the church this kind of language about, about the woman and the bride being the bride with the, with the crown on her head? Ezekiel 16? Well, we did hear that back in Ezekiel. That's right. Well, I asked. Advent, is it? It is in Advent, but what day is it? Hmm. Cassie's getting closer. <laughs> it's not Psalm 110. I, have to, I can't remember what Psalm is. That's the footstool one. Hmm. See, I'm, I'm, I'm cheating because I've got a hymnal. So, I, I, I just thought, this is the other problem with, um, with my head, my, my, my mind, is that I didn't actually prepare to say this, so that means I have to actually do the work while I'm standing in front of you, because <laughs> these things come to mind as we're studying. That's okay. You're making, uh, what do you call those? Uh, connections, I guess. All right, where's the lectionary in here? I, I'll just, you want me to just cheat? Okay. It is the, uh, it is an Advent, uh, but it's with the Feast of Mary, St. Mary, which is interesting. So, like, uh, St. Mary, August uh, 15th, that's her feast day, but she also gets an Advent. Uh, is it an Advent we get the visitation? Because it's nine months before the birth? No, that's in March. Mm-hmm. So that's during Lent, or it's close to Lent, that's right. Isn't there one in July? Yeah, there's one, no, there's not one, it's in August, August 15th. There's, there's actually, in the Lutheran calendar, there's four, there's four holidays for Mary, which, uh, or to re- remember Mary, 
which I think might bother some Lutherans. Because they're like, isn't that... Too Catholic. Say it. I heard it. Yeah, too Catholic. Um, and it's not because, well, look at what we're studying here. We're studying a wedding. And who's at the wedding? Mary. And then uh, what's the ne- only next time that we ever hear of Mary and John's gospel? I told you this last week. At the cross. Right? And what does he do at the cross? What does the Lord do at the cross for Mary? Gives her a son. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, gives her a son, right? And so then she becomes um, the mother of the apostles in a way. Isn't that something? Mm. So I know this makes people uncomfortable because we don't intercede. We don't think Mary intercedes for us. We don't need to pray to her. Um, but like the apostles, she's given a, a very prominent role as far as, uh, at least as a picture of fulfilling these prophecies and being then not Israel herself, but being what we call an icon of Israel, or a, what do you want to say? An image of Israel. What's that? Symbol. Yeah, symbol. That's right. Okay, I can't remember what psalm it is, and I can't find the lectionary in this hymnal, so we should just move on. But uh, believe me, now you can listen for it. Ooh, I'm going to give you something fun, since you're, you're, this is the diehard crowd, so you, you get all the special Special stuff. Oh, visitations, July second. Did you say that, Ethan? I said I did. Uh, March is the Annunciation. <laughs> February second is the Purification of Mary and the Presentation of Our Lord. So it's both a feast to Mary and Jesus. And then uh, Mary's Saint Mary's Day is uh, August fifteenth. So yeah. So and three of those are pri- what they what they indicate here are principal feasts of Christ. So actually, a feast for Mary. The visitation is actually a feast for Jesus. Same with the purification. Or, um, I I said there are four. I only gave you three. Uh, We'll find the other one. I said there's four. I may be wrong. By the way, that's uh, Gillespie coffee, so drink up. All right, so, uh, should we look? Oh, we really should look at Hosea. Let's look at Hosea. Uh, Hosea, really, the whole book is this theme. (laughs) So we're not going to look at the whole book. Uh, it would be a fun one to look at, but and, and not and Hosea. It's not in the. Mm, it's not portrayed in the best of lights. <laughs> um, but this is a theme throughout, and not, especially in this wedding kind of picture, is that the bridegroom is faithful even when the bride is not. And so, actually, the work of the bridegroom, we might say it this way, is continually redeeming his bride. It's not just on the wedding day, but it's lifelong. It's because she keeps going off, leaving the house, and then he brings her back, brings her back, brings her back. So that kind of, what do we want to call it, patience, long-suffering, um, it's not something we really know um, in our own lives. Uh, even if we aspire towards it, I don't think, I don't know, personally, and maybe even, it's not realized. We only see that kind of character in God, that he suffers everything, uh, even rejecting him. So, Hosea, go for it. Elsie, you looked at me. 19 Yeah, just 19 and 20. Just two thirds in there. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice. In steadfast love and in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Yeah. 
so that that's an interesting text. Uh, I, like I said, the whole book is really about this theme. But here in particular, notice what the, the wedding vow is. If we want to use the words wedding for these vows, how does God marry? I mean, what are his vows? There's a couple of different ones there, right? Big, like we said in chapel, $10 church words, right? Or $15 church words. Righteousness, yeah. justice, mm-hmm. love, mercy, and faithfulness. Yeah, so actually it's five, right? So righteousness, what is righteousness? That word's actually pretty easy to define. Do it, uh, my my uh, high school English teacher honors English. I used to be able to write English really well. Talk, <laughs> talk good. <laughs> Apparently. I don't know what happened. Uh, I live in the Midwest. Righteousness. Oh, definition. Uh, she called it the high school definition. It's when you define it with the same word. Oh, it means right. Being right, full of rightness. I'm like, okay. Okay. <laughs> But that's actually a pretty good definition. What is it to be right? To be free of something. Yeah. To be free of something. That's an interesting idea. Okay with. Okay with. Yeah. If you may write that, well, okay, I guess I'm kind of thinking of justice there, but it could be in in a court where you're declared guiltless. Okay, yes, it's used in a legal way sometimes. Um, I, I do this, what's this called? In geometry, a right angle, right? So it's so it's perfectly ninety degrees, right? Um, but here in the the word righteousness, uh, the Hebrew and in Greek too, this works out the same way. The word righteousness is um, a direct sibling with justification. So justification is being made righteous. It's the verb form of righteousness, the noun. Did you know that? This is a problem with Greek, Hebrew to English. It's the same thing with like, well, like the king reigns, but in Greek and Hebrew both, it's the king kings. It's the verb noun, same verb. Same here, righteousness and being made and being made right, we call justification. But justification, again, ten dollar church word, but it just means being made righteous. So, but justify is helpful for us because we use that um, now with computers. Everybody knows what justification is because, well, maybe not. If you use the word processor, because you've got the the four icons, right? You know what I'm talking about. Left, center, right? Yeah, center, and then you know, left, all here, and then right, the lines all are right justified. I don't know, when do you use that? Maybe for a header, for headings, like for an address or something? And then of course, full, fully justified is where they spread the letters out to make it fit, right? So it goes to edge to edge. That's like for uh, books, right? novels, yeah. And, and here, to be just, if the justification is that things are made in line, right? They're all brought in conformity with one another. The edge is, is uniform, right? So it's not just being okay. Who said that? Yeah. It's not just being okay. It's better than okay, actually. It's being made, Perfect. yeah, completely in line with. Um, that's, why, that's why it's really a helpful word, because when we talk about, like, our works, you say... Well, I'm doing okay, or I'm, I'm getting better. I'm working at it. We're a little messed up. We saw the billboard yesterday that I quote all the time. And there it was. We got to drive by it yesterday on the way back from Indiana. We're all a little messed up, but we're working on it. <laughs> and this is a Christian church. It's the largest church in uh, Northwest Indiana. Um, reformed in, in Dutch Reformed in, in historically, but they've went so far from that. 
Uh, we're all a little messed up, but we're working on that. Well, that's everybody likes a self-improvement project. Well, maybe they don't. They want a little self-improvement project. They don't want to actually be fully improved because then they don't have anything to work on anymore. And then what? What are you going to do? If you're already, if you're made completely right, this is actually the scandal of the gospel. <laughs> is that Jesus died for your sins, all your sins, past, present, future, and your, even your sinful nature, which is the cause of all your sins. That's all died for and forgiven. Now, and there's nothing you need to do to earn it, to, to even keep it. He does that too. He keeps, keeps you in the faith. Just receive it and be forgiven. And you're like, but what do I have to do? And he says, it's done. It's finished. And you're like, well, wait a minute. So, yeah, this undermines um, our church in a way, <laughs> the way we think of church. Because we think about, it's like learning life lessons to get better. And, uh, so, but it's, as far as faith goes, or part, as far as justification goes, as far as forgiveness goes, it's all done. It's forgiven. And you receive it, and you rejoice. And you're like, well, then what do I do? Well, before your neighbor, I'm going to get to works, because I know Ron wants me to talk about works. Get his hand coming. Yeah. Before your neighbor, of course you work at that. But, you know, before one another here, you have, I mean... Being forgiven by Jesus sounds easy. It wasn't. He died on the cross for that. <laughs> um, receiving that sounds easy. It's not. It's the work of his Holy Spirit. It's a divine miracle that you believe it. Um, but then forgiving others, mm, not so easy. And you know that's true, right? So he has to work that. He too works that in you and uses you uh, as his instrument to live in lives of love towards one another. Mm. Um, not so easy. And uh, we do have to work at that. We struggle against our flesh. Um, but actually, we would say it's this... Paul would... Well, I would just echo Paul that it's not I who do these things, but it's Christ who is in me who does them. If, if, if I bear any semblance to a faithful, godly pastor for you, it's... I, trust me, I work at it, um, but I consider it a miracle because I know my own nature and my own willingness to speak truthfully and uh, also my shortcomings and where I fail to speak and all that, you know? So uh, this is what Luther calls receiving all things with the dead hand of faith. <laughs> I mean, you're dead. Uh, you have the hand of faith and you have fingers. And actually everything kind of falls through. And you, so he just keeps filling it up. And actually when it falls through, it falls through for the benefit of those around you. Right? Were you going to say something else, Ron? Yeah, I was going to mention that. I put words in your mouth. We had a... Uh... Remember here, died a few years ago. Hmm. Whenever you ask him, uh, "How are you doing? Or how are you?" He would say, "Perfect." Huh? And uh, I always was a little puzzled when he would say that. Yeah, that's good. But now on his tombstone, it says, "Perfect in the Lord." Oh, that's beautiful. Hmm. Yeah. I thought so too. I'm a little cautious with the word "perfect" because, <clears throat> um, I mean, what does that mean? Uh, for, it's righteous. <laughs> yeah, it, in, in, in the best sense, it means righteous. I think, um, unfortunately, that word has been conditioned a little bit by Aristotle, who had it in terms of like most noble and virtuous and like um, what we would call like the uber, what well, Nietzsche would call the ubermensch, uh, Superman. You know, that's not what the Bible means by perfect. It means complete. Um, that is holy and without sin. Right, which is done on the last day in the resurrection. So that's why that tomb is, tombstone is beautiful. Yeah, perfect. Um, I heard a story about a missionary who would always say to people when they would leave, um, I'll see you for lunch. And you're like, 
but it's the same thing. He's talking about the resurrection. You know, I'll see you. We'll have a meal together. It'll be beautiful. Um, even if I don't see you before then, you know. So, yeah, that's great. Complete, perfect, justified, made righteous. All right, that's the first term. We talk a lot about that. Justice. And this is not our, this is not what we consider justice, which we would actually probably call revenge. <laughs> right? You ever watch these movies? I must have justice. It just means I'm going to have revenge. Vengeance is mine, says the, uh, says the uh, superhero. And I just watched an action movie trilogy. The third movie I saw in the theater. I, well, I can tell you what it is. It doesn't matter. The whole story is about, about it, it all begins with, with a mob guy killing his dog. And so we have three movies where basically the idea is he's still just mad and he's trying to get vengeance for, for, for them killing his dog. John Wick. John Wick. A man and his dog. I mean, I get it. And it, there's more to the story than that. But, but that's, is that justice? Yeah, they have codes of conduct because they're assassins, and you don't have to watch it. It's very violent, but um, but it is it actually is exactly the way our heart works. Is that like we get to establish what we think is right and just? Um, that's not what's here. Is it's his justice, right? Uh, well, you, I will betroth you to me in implied my righteousness, my justice, right? And what's the just thing that the Lord does for His bride? Yeah, yeah. God's standard of justice is forgiveness. Huh. Ours is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, you know, Hammurabi, uh, that sort of thing. I shouldn't drink any more coffee. I'm starting to, starting to feel it. I don't usually have a full supply available to me, so I can moderate. I'll put it down. Uh, justice, that's right, forgiveness. Good job, John. And loving kindness, that's a really weighty word. Mine says loving kindness. Cassie, you're said, or who read it? Steadfast love, you read right? Yeah. Steadfast love. Is there somebody else? I have another translation? Roberta, you got one? You have a different one. Same. Same? Okay. Yeah, the word there is chesed. So you got to get a little bit of guttural chesed. You know, you've heard Hebrew speech. Uh, it does mean steadfast loving kindness. If you want to just really expand it out. But we don't put all that in. But it's that... Kind and great. It's really like uh, what we hear in the in the benediction, right? The Lord's face shine upon you, be gracious to you, um, look upon you with favor. That whole idea is wrapped up in this one word. So it's such a beautiful word, and that, like I said, He's steadfast in, in His love and His kindness towards His bride, even when she is not reciprocating that to Him, which is usually. Uh, and then mercy is the is the fourth one, right? So mercy, you know, mercy is a, it's not the same as forgiveness. Mercy is, what would you say? If he's merciful, what's that? Compassion. Yeah, compassion. It's, I think mercy is more, you're, I think you're right, it's more directed towards um, physical, right? He has compassions on the crowd and he has them sit down and he feeds them in John 6, which we'll get to, right? So compassion. And then uh, betrothing to you to me in faithfulness. Notice who's doing the vowing here. <laughs> The Lord is vowing to her faithfulness, right? And, uh, and you shall know the Lord. And uh, he seems to leave out the fact that she says all these words back to him. Oh. Well, actually, she doesn't. So, again, that's that picture of redemption. He brings her out. Even Maybe you might even add to it, like kicking and screaming. She's not really all that happy about it, um, even though it's a blessing to her. All right? So that's like getting the kids ready to go this morning to come to church. Or, 
Yeah, I kind of drag you out of bed. And like, it's like, you're the, you're the bride going to meet the bridegroom, you know? Light the lamps, let's go. And you're just like, <laughs> it was a long day yesterday. I'm, I know I'm making it up. Just, just play along. Just play along. All right, good. So, God is faithful. Back to the sheet. God is faithful even as Israel is not. Um, oh, we didn't read 16. So go back 16. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you shall call me my husband and no longer call me my master. For I will take from your, her mouth the names of the Baals and they shall be remembered by their name no more. Um, oh, there's so much I want to talk about. Is that okay? We'll just keep talking. The, um, one of the parts of this that we saw both in Isaiah and now in Hosea is, is this idea of a name. You catching that? And, and we have this tradition, generally speaking, that when, when a woman is married, they take their husband's name, right? Um, and in here in this picture, her name is not a good name. She doesn't have a good name. She's actually known, or her identity is according to her false worship. You know, so this would be like she's called, I mean, there's actually characters in the Bible, Eth Baal. You know, he's actually named after a false god. Uh, do we have any examples of that? Oh, I was watching a, another new show, which you also shouldn't watch. Um, <laughs> but it, it plays on these themes. It's called Good Omens. It's on Amazon Prime. Uh, it's based on a book by uh, Neil Gaiman and uh, Terry Pratchett, who's now deceased. Anyway, but it's this conversation between an angel and a demon at, on, on Armageddon, um, during the Armageddon, which is... And it's, it's, it's funny, it's comedy, it's that deadpan British dark humor, so it's really good. Um, if you're into that. But anyway, what did I bring this up? Oh, uh, names, right? And being named. And uh, um, the, the demon child of Satan gets switched at birth <laughs> with the wrong baby, but they end up naming the children as if this, this one is Satan's offspring. Eh, don't worry about it. And, and the, 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 the fake nuns are saying, the nuns of Satan are saying, I know it sounds like the show is really horrible and you shouldn't watch it. But anyway, so name him Damien. And they're like, no, 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 we're not going to, Damien's a little, mm. and she's like, there's this old English name called Warlock. Why do you name him Warlock? <laughs> and so they name the wrong child who's not actually the spawn of Satan, Warlock. You can imagine growing up with that name. The names matter, right? And uh, so being named after a false god, or in this case, the child of Satan, Damien, or Lucifer. You name your child Lucifer. I actually knew a Damien growing up. And he was pretty terrible. Ended up in jail. Yeah, it was pretty horrible. Dealing drugs. It's like, um, there's a way that you put a name on someone, and they kind of grow into it. Yeah, you're not in your head. I mean, it's true. Ethan, yeah. I didn't know. We just named him Ethan, and then we find out what well, he's the—he's David's chief musician, or your score, or chief musician, I guess. Yeah, chief musician, right? And uh, Luke, <laughs> <laughs> this remains to be seen yet. <laughs> Elizabeth, maybe Gabriel. He's such an angel. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's a messenger. He always has words to say. Yeah, you're right. That's cool. That's cool. All right. Yeah, so names matter. So she gets a new name, and that's part of her. That's now her identity. This, and this is really beautiful because um, this, the, the whole, like I said, John chapter 1 through 4 is about identity. Um, 
in the background is identity because in the background is baptism. And this is one of the things I think we've really probably dropped the ball on um, as a church. Not necessarily this church, but broadly speaking, is uh, helping people recognize that their identity, no matter what they feel about themselves or how they consider themselves or even call themselves, um, is I am baptized. I am a child of God. And uh, which is beautiful. It's a beautiful picture because you come to baptism uh, not bringing any kind of, even if you came as an adult, you don't, you don't come with nobility and virtue and godliness and holiness. Um, you actually only come with sin, death, and devil you know, at, your, at your heels. Or even under captivity of the devil. We talked about that, right? And then God says, no, I redeem you. I'll wash you clean. You are my child, right? So their baptism and wedding have a lot of similarities, don't they? Because um, now you have that name, and that name's put upon you. We heard this two weeks ago. I don't even know what we... End of the school year, it's, this is my first experience with school, and I, I'm totally sympathetic. Like, I don't even know what day it is. I was like, I'm glad I showed up with the right day for church. Um, just, you're just kind of running towards the end of the school year, and you're just hoping, and with confirmation, and committals, and all these other things going on. Anyway, you get a name put on you, right? On your forehead, on your heart, to mercy was one redeemed. So a branding, right? We do that with, this, with the spheres. You put the, I don't know where you put it. Where do they put the branding? On the cow. Wherever, right? Yeah, on the back. Sheep would put a tag in their ear. You know? So you get marked um, with a new name. And so no matter what you think of yourself, uh, however you want to say it, sinner, forsaken, desolate, um, abandoned, whatever some other words that others might call you, you might consider yourself. Oh, we see this play out with what we call identity politics. You know about this? So, like, LBGTQ plus, I think I got them all. Did I get them all? I think I got them all. Uh, notice that, that that's really about identity. It's not so much about sexual preference and all that. It's about having a people, having a name, having um, something to call yourself. So that may be a new thought to you. So mull that over. Think about that. It's like, I am gay. Um, you're attracted to people of the same sex, physically. Um, I would say to you, you are a child of God. You are baptized. He made he, you can call yourself whatever you want to call yourself. He calls you his child. He died for you to redeem you and to give you that gift. Um, and that is a greater gift. That's a greater name than any name you can give yourself. Right? Does that make sense? So when someone comes and says, I don't know if God can love me, and say, he died for you. He calls you his child. You were baptized. Uh, there's a great hymn that does this. It's a new hymn to us, but it's Vol- Volker translated it. God's own child, you know this one? We're going to sing it quite a bit more, I think, than probably you sang it before. It's new to this hymnal, so uh, we have to sing it more, otherwise we won't really learn it, right? Um, 594 in the hymnal. Uh, are we singing it today? Yep. We are singing it today. Thank you, Ethan. Last school year, the older students did like a choral arrangement oh, yeah. of that one. You did the Hildebrand one, right? Yes. I yeah. Isn't that a beautiful hymn? Beautiful hymn. God's own child, I say it, I am baptized into Christ. And that just keeps repeating over and over and over. Um, and then responding to all sorts of uh, the ways that we would identify ourselves. Sin, disturb my soul no longer. Satan, hear this proclamation. Death, you cannot end my gladness. You know, sin, death, and devil are right there. But 
good Lutheran thing. This is Neumeister. I mean, it's from the 17th century, so it's an old hymn, but it's really the most one of the most popular baptismal hymns in, in Germany. But it was in German, never got translated into English, so we kind of lost it for a while. And then, like I said, Velker translated it for us. Um, copyright 1991, so pretty new. Did it make it? Maybe it was in the hymnal supplement. Uh, 98, I think it was actually. But such a beautiful hymn, and now popular, very popular. So identity, new name, identity, also in the background here. For the rabbis, God giving the law by Moses on Sinai was God's marriage, uh, God's marriage to Israel. Mm, sorry, the Torah, the marriage contract, and Moses, the best man. That's extra biblical, um, but that is how the Jews of Jesus' day understood those texts. That that was a picture of marriage. That Sinai, the giving of the law, was not a picture of judgment, but a picture of marriage. Um, maybe a little terrifying marriage, but still, right? Because you have clouds and lightning. And, but uh, we don't, that's the part we think about. And then we forget, oh, all the elders went up onto the mountain and they all feasted with the Lord and Moses. So we only think about the terrifying part, but then, there, well, of course, there was the golden calf. And, yeah, yeah. Got a little crazy. A little crazy day. All right. Next part. We already talked about this a little bit, but it's worth uh, repeating. The presence of Mary at the scene is essential. She won't, won't appear again until the cross, John 19, 25, 27, which John, John knows John. Good job, John. Lots of John here. Um, there she is addressed again by this term, woman. All right, because remember, he has that rebuke. Woman, what does this have to do with me? I know we didn't read the text again today, but that's okay. That's the, that's the only other time that, that expression is used in John. So she only appears in these two places, and then that term referring to her is used in both places, which should be, ding, 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 a hint, right? As the second time you would hear this gospel, you'd be like, it's like the second time you watch a movie, you realize, oh, John Book 3 was actually better than I thought because I'd forgotten all the things that were in 1 and 2 that they refer to in 3. They just assume you remember everything that happened in 1 and 2. Well, I don't remember. I don't remember movies like the next day. All right. Sorry, another John Wick reference. Sorry. Um, she, so Mary serves as an inclusio, or we would just call that like bookends and everything. She's in, she's in the background in the middle, but she's at the beginning and the end of the story, which is essential. Um, also then connecting the, this event of the wedding at Cana to the cross, which we'll talk about some more here in a moment. Um, he is also, I think, establishing some distance from her while at the same time affirming his close relationship to the Father. All right, so, I mean, we get this in the synoptics. Isn't that Joseph's son? You know, isn't he the son of the carpenter? Isn't he from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Good question. I don't know. Anything, what would be equivalent of Nazareth? Anything good come from Waldo? You know, I don't know. They probably have something. What's good in Waldo? This is on the recording, so be careful. I'm just joking. <laughs> I don't, something way up north, you know. Can anything, actually, people like to go up north, so that's not helping us either. Anyway, you get the idea. Uh, his relationship is to the Father. Um, this is the way John does this, whereas in the synoptics, you know, you have the uh, boy Jesus in the temple. Right? And don't you know I need to be about my Father's business? Right? And there that you get that distance being established. He still cares for her, um, of course, she is the bearer, uh, bearer of the Son of God. She's the, 
our confessions are clear about this. It's essential you confess Mary as the mother of God. Now, can God be born? Mm -hmm. Uh, For everyone else, every other religion, no. But in our case, he takes human flesh and is born of the Virgin Mary. We confess that every pretty much every time we gather, um, which isn't something that we necessarily can get our head around, is how can you bear the, the Son of God? Uh, I don't know. And then you end up with lots of speculative hymns, like, Mary, did you know? Uh, she did, because she sang she knew. My soul magnifies the Lord, and the Spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he is... Well, anyway, you know the hymn, or the canticle. Uh, the new family... Of God, not faux God. I'm, I'm speaking in the, what do you call it? Jive. The new family of God is established by the Spirit. From above, we'll hear in chapter 4, right? no, four, chapter 3, and she will be the spiritual mother of the beloved disciple. The new Israel is bathed in the blood of the Lamb, a new creation by the Spirit. Um, so this, this actually would help you in, in your reading of Revelation as well, because you'll find the woman in Revelation, which you can understand both, I think, as Mary and as the church. And so she gets transposed on top of, she becomes the icon, like I said, of the church. Is that following? So it's not wrong to revere Mary and to give thanks to God for um, the way that he used Mary. In the same way, we would give thanks to God for John the Baptist or St. Paul right, or St. Peter. Um, or even for someone like Mary Magdalene. I mean, we give thanks. She has feast day too because she's the first to announce the resurrection. The Lord chose her to have that special role, if you like, in, in the history of salvation. Um, so men, you know, when they come and run to you and say, hey, I got good news, you know, you can listen. It's okay. No, unless I see him, you know. We're a little patriarchal too. All right. Turn the page. We've got a couple of minutes. Let's talk through this a little bit. If you're not in John chapter 2, you might need to refer to that here because we're, we're we didn't reread it. Um, when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus came to him and said, they have no wine. Which, I don't know, seems kind of bizarre, right? Like, what does Jesus care about wine? And why does she come to him? I love, uh, have you seen uh, Rowan Atkinson? You know Rowan Atkinson, the comedian? Best known for Mr. Bean. All right. He, he did stand-up as well. So you can watch this on YouTube. Look for the, search for the stand-up. Um, I think, what does he call himself? The Vicar, I think. So it's the Vicar, and he's narrating John chapter 2. He's like, Jesus. She, this is the words he gives to Mary as he kind of, in King James English, because he's really funny. Um, you know, Jesus, do that thing that you do. <laughs> it's like, uh, Mel Gibson does this in the Passion movie, has Jesus doing like little miracles. There's a lot of mm, medieval, mystical sources where they talk about the miracles of Jesus. But recently, uh, author, the vampire author, Anne Rice, you know Anne Rice? She, um, she converted to Catholicism and she wrote um, at least one, maybe more than one book on like the boy Jesus and his... His little miracles. And it's all speculative. And I don't know how helpful it is then for you. Uh, but Jesus, do that thing that you do. And see, it does seem that she's kind of thinking, like, they have no wine and you can take care of this. And remember, this is the first sign. So at least according to John's gospel, it's like, Jesus hasn't been doing things. He hasn't begun his ministry that way. 
Um, so Mary identifies the problem, expresses the need to Jesus. That's actually uh, good. That's what we call prayer, <laughs> right? I have this need, and you're the one who can answer my need. So it's, I think it's faithful. I don't think she's just being like, hey, do your miracle thing. I think she's being faithful here. But he re- rebukes her, rebuffs her, right? What does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Um, she does not, like, like the Canaanite woman, this doesn't bug her at all, which is pretty incredible, I think. Um, there's some people who would say he's not rebuking her with this woman text or term. Um, I think that's pretty sketchy. The, the evidence is that this is actually a rebuke. Um, the other times it's used is less than complimentary when you use this. It's gunai in, in Greek. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Good question. Um, but like I mentioned, the Canaanite woman, Jesus does this. He doesn't always answer prayer right away, and he wants you to, to kind of wrestle it to the ground and say, am I asking this because I'm greedy or because I'm not merciful, you know, um, out of vengeance, or am I asking this in faithfulness, right? And so he'll keep, what do you want to say, grinding you down until finally you just say, Lord, whatever your will be, do it. Because <laughs> I clearly don't know what, what it is that you, um, that you have in mind for me. Yeah, wrong. In, in reality, Jesus would have known the wine was gone before mm-hmm. she said it. Yeah, and that's, that's an interesting idea uh, because in the Gospels, they play with this. Is he the Son of God? Does he know all things? Yes. Does he always exercise that? No. Does he always you know, just take care of things? No. Um, I would put it this way. Uh, the way the dogmatics say is he's in a state of humiliation that's by his own voluntary will. He chooses to humble himself, to be born of the virgin, and to live as, as man, and to grow in wisdom and stature before God and men, you know, which we hear at the boy Jesus in the temple. Um, he chooses that life even though he could at any time, and he even tells us the pilot, right? don't you know I could call down a whole legion and, you know, I could have an army of angels here, like now? It's a good question, right? But he doesn't. On second thought, um, had he taken care of it before she asked him, it wouldn't have given her the chance to exercise her faith. Well, to be exercised into faith, I would even say. She has faith, and yet he strengthens her faith, right? Pointing it in the right direction, the right understanding. And that term, my hour has not yet come, which is the next thing. I mean, that's essential. You can see that, verse 4. Um, that hour in John's gospel, which we, can talk, we could talk about for a whole, whole hour, <laughs> um, is the hour of his death in John's gospel. So he keeps saying, my time or my hour has not yet come. And time, by the way, is kairos. Um, my time, that, which is better translated than time, my moment. So chronos is like tick-tock, tick-tock. Or actually, chronos is tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. Kairos is the is when all time is brought together into culmination or perfection or completion. So when he says my time has not yet come, it's like the the time, the moment, the thing that's been promised forever has not yet come. Mm. And then uh, and hour is another term for that. And I give you all the references there that I well many of them John seven eight twelve thirteen. So he keeps saying my hour is not yet come. This is the first time he says it, of course. Um, so that's, that's for faith, Ron. I think you're right. Is saying, I can do this thing now, but let this thing now be a sign 
towards the thing that it's all about, the time, the hour. Um, so, on, and, and this is what I'm urging you to do as we study this, is to think of the wedding in Cana in terms of the cross, because Jesus himself tells us to, by saying, my hour has not yet come. Um, and what does this concern have to do with me? Notice her confident response, though. Whatever he says, do it. And these are the last words we hear from her. It's really the only words we hear from her and John. And it's the last words we hear chronologically in any of the Gospels. She never says anything after this, after the wedding at Cana. So the last word she leaves with you is, whatever he says, do it. Um, which I think is a pretty helpful instruction to the church. <laughs> you know? He says, believe and be baptized. You know, go and make disciples, baptizing and teaching. Just do it. Um, and we're not very good about that. We'd rather second guess and come up with our own, you know, ways of being religious and, you know, exercising the faith and growing the church or whatever it is. And he just, and Mary just says, listen to him and do what he tells you. Um, and there's great freedom in that, isn't there? Rather than have to be so super creative and coming up with new ideas and ways of behaving, simply say, you know what? Um, he gave us a hymn book. Let's sing that, those hymns. You know, they're called the Psalms, right? Um, he gave us canticles, you know? We have the songs of Moses and Miriam, and Isaiah has songs. Ezekiel has a song, doesn't he? I don't know. Not, uh, we have songs from Mary and Elizabeth and... Um, Darius, Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, that's true. We don't sing Darius and Nebuchadnezzar's songs. Um, and Cyrus, too. Um, we, but could. They, we could. We could, because they're faithful. Uh, God puts faithful words into pagan kings, which is... And donkeys, by the way. <laughs> which is really incredible. Um, maybe that's why my aunt loved Eeyore so much. My aunt was a sixth grade teacher, and her favorite character was Eeyore, and she, like, epitomized Eeyore in her classroom. <laughs> and it had to drive... And the kids loved her, because that's how she was. She just... She had that... It's that, it's that humor that I use, that deadpan, just never smile, and just, but just funny as all get out, but... Also, the stones and the stars can speak. The stones and stars can speak. My point was, is the scriptures give us lots of things that we can sing. That's fine. We can still create new things. We have God's own child. Beautiful hymn. Confession of the scriptures. Um, but let's use the ones he gives us, too. I mean, but, but I was really referring more to the institutions. When he actually says, baptize and teach. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Right? Take bread, say. Take wine, say. Um, in the cup. Mm. Oh, and forgive. As I have forgiven you for example. So we have all of that. Mary assumes the role, again, of expectant Israel, whose faith and hope are looking for the coming Messiah, and the eschatological marriage, remember, that's that's not even a $10 church word. What do you want to call eschatological? $100 church word. Okay, Big money. It just means end times. That's all it means. Words about the end. Uh, Eschatological marriage between God and Israel. Consider especially... (laughs) I always give you more text. Exodus 24, 9 to 18, including the blood, glory, Torah, and obedience. So we're not going to do that now because we're out of time, but uh, maybe we can pick up on that. I thought I'd get through this today.